Well, welcome. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We are glad to, uh, to see you. We are hoping that you've had a good weekend so far. We are hoping that you will um, have a good rest of today and tomorrow. We are in the midst of a series that we've just started on the book of Exodus about a God who loves us and delivers us and communes with us. It's a beautiful story, the story of Exodus, and it resonates right through to the New Testament. This is one of the central Old Testament books to understand the person and work of Christ. We are now uh, ending the first chapter and beginning the second chapter. This is the portion of Scripture we will be looking at, and here to help us with that is Haley. The Scripture reading today is from Exodus 1, to chapter 2, verse 10. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him for, a, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And a sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Almost all of us have faced moments in our lives when tragedy or evil has washed over us. My wife and I are not immune to that. We have not had this kind of evil, but I do remember years of struggling to have children, not knowing why we could not conceive, finally being pushed by my family to consider adoption, and then being rejected several times. This was over about a decade. It was heartbreaking, and it felt honestly like God had left the building. I remember one of those times when we were rejected. After comforting Sue, I went off by myself, and I got quite angry with God. And through my tears, I ranted into the void and heard nothing back. The silence was deafening. And all that came to my mind at that moment were the lyrics of a very old song, a song most of you have never heard, by a man most of you have never heard of, named Don McLean. The song is called American Pie, and these are the words that came to my mind. The three men I admire most, 
the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. They caught the last train for the coast. The day the music died. The silence of God can be deafening. The silence of God can be confusing. It can be infuriating. It can be crushing. It can be for you and me the day the music died. But the point of this passage is, in the midst of that silence, the kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. The power of God is always working. And the love of God is still and always will be present. So when you face what appears to be the silence of God, trust in his power, promises, and purpose. Respond in faith because it is there in the crucible of pain and evil and faith that God meets us in sovereign silence. We are going to look at two points today. The sovereign silence of God, the sovereign power of God. Firstly, the sovereign silence of God from the first four verses where this man from the house of Levi takes a Levite woman. She bears a son, but the son is under this edict of death that has occurred because a king, a pharaoh, has arisen in Egypt who does not know or value the Jewish people. He fears them. They have grown. They have flourished so much. They pose to him a real and present threat to his rule and his nation. And so he puts an edict of genocide. Let every male be killed. And here we see God, who in the whole book shapes and protects and delivers his people, a great story of redemption that we know how it ends. We see the people not knowing how it ends in the midst of the story, facing annihilation. And you and I, who are living our own story, we don't know how it ends. And so when brokenness and evil and tragedy hit us, not knowing how it ends, we need to know how to respond. These Jewish people are stunned. God had promised their forefather Abraham a nation, a kingdom, their own land, kings to come from them. But now here, where is he? He's not even mentioned in this passage. He seems to have gone silent because evil is howling in triumph. And I submit to you, this is how we all feel. And if you're not a Christian, this is often how you feel. Time after time in my life, I have seen great tragedies come into our culture. And it is at those moments when tsunamis hit, when thousands are killed, when great tragedies occur, that stories hit the media. Where is God in all of this? Notice those stories aren't happening when all things are going well. Only when tragedy and evil strikes. What does that say about us and our self-absorption? We ignore God when it's good. We run to God with accusations when it ain't. But now let's sit in their sandals for a moment because they have what I would say would be a legitimate question. 
because God told them to go to Egypt. Near the end of the previous book, Genesis, in verse 46, when a drought is threatening the Jewish people who are not living in Egypt, he said, I am God, the God of your father. Verse 3, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. Did you hear that verse? Because in that verse is a key to understanding these verses and how these people act. Because it poses both the problem, where is God when he promised to be with us, and the solution. You feel the promise. God, you told me you would be with me, and now I'm in this mess. Why? What gives? You promised to protect us. But if you heard my verse carefully, you would see the beginning of a solution. He said, I will be with you, and I will bring you up out again. Men and women, the seeming silence of God in the momentary circumstances of our lives is not the absence of God. He did not take the last train for the coast. The seeming silence of God is a sovereign silence of a present God. Because God had given the people of Israel two things to cling to in this moment of darkness. And the two things he'd given them was the promise I just shared and his intervention, his acts in history on their behalf. His acts in history, he'd come to Abraham and he had promised him a nation. He had promised him that he would build a kingdom through him. He'd promised him a land. That's Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And he has acted in history. He gave Abraham a miraculous child after menopause had hit, when Sarah could no longer have children. He gave Abraham Isaac, and he gave Isaac Jacob. He preserved the Jews through the, rot, through the drought, through the rise of Joseph, the son that had been sold into slavery. What, what Joseph's brothers had meant for evil, God had used to deliver his people. So when God seemed silent to Joseph, he was about to work in and through Joseph to save and build his people and relocate them in Egypt and save them from the drought that was happening in their land. This is the acts of God in the history of his people. And Moses' mother, Jochebed, and jo Moses' sister, Miriam, would have heard those stories. They would know. They would know the promise that he would be with them. They would have both his acts in history and his promise that he will lead them in, be with them in, and lead them out. They would have both of these as guardrails, as it were, as anchors to anchor them in the storm of this present darkness. Now scholars are intrigued and delighted and mystified a little by the mother's actions. In response to an edict that her son be drowned in the Nile, she hides him for three months, that's the natural part, but then she brings them, their, her son to the Nile. That's the mysterious part. It's a twist of irony. She brings the baby Moses to the Nile River as if she's going to drown him in obedience to this evil edict, and instead she floats him in a little boat. The Hebrew word is tava. It's covered little boat, fit for a little child to be protected from. 
Remember that word teva, for it is only used one more time in the whole of the Old Testament when Noah builds a teva, an ark. What are these two women doing? They are acting in faith. They know God has promised to make Israel a great nation and a world-blessing kingdom. And so his mother sees through the eyes of faith the past acts of grace of God and the promises of God to be with them. And in faith, she says, if I'm going to put my son out there, I'm going to put him out in hope that someone else can deliver him from this evil. The Nile was known as a place for Egyptians to go to bathe and other reasons. And so she sets this up for Moses to be rescued from death by the hand of another, an Egyptian who has no reason to contravene the edict of their own Pharaoh and have mercy. She's trusting in the unlikely mercy of someone who has no reason to give mercy. That, men and women, is faith in the Christian understanding, in fact, I've just described to you the gospel. Because the gospel tells us that an edict, not of unjust genocidal judgment, but an edict of holy, just judgment, hangs against every human being. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have gone our own way. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of our sin is death. As Jaja said, spiritual separation from God. You and I, men and women, wherever we are in our journey of faith, are selfish. We are sinful. We have defied God and done our own thing. But God, according to the gospel, loves us with an infinite love. God sent his son, Jesus, into human form to take upon himself not only our nature, but to take upon himself our moral debt and to walk a debtor to the cross and to pay with his life the debt that we owe God. And if you are here and you are not yet a Christian, you are called to do what Moses' mother did, but with your own life, to offer yourself up and say, may the mercy of someone who has no reason to have mercy upon me, may it come upon me by unconditional grace. And if you do that, if you do that, God, will have mercy upon you. Jesus will come and forgive you. Come to Jesus in faith today, trusting not in your own goodness to deserve anything, but in the unconditional grace and mercy of God himself. And if you're already a Christian, these two things, the promises that God has given us and the acts of God in history that God has shown to us are precious anchors for us in times of storm. Has God not acted in history? I just described his act in history. He sent Jesus for you. Jesus died for you. You've accepted his gift and been forgiven. You know. But that God who has sent Jesus has not only acted in history, he's given us precious promises. 
He has said, behold, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age in Matthew 28, verse 20. In Isaiah 43, he says, when you pass through the waters, that's waters of suffering and affliction, I will be with you. And through the, though the Though the rivers and through the rivers, but they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And Romans 8 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? For I am sure, verse 38, that neither death nor life angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Has not God given us that promise? He loves you. Has He not promised He will bring us through our afflictions to great rest and glory? Did Jesus not say in John 14, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You will go. This whole world is a place of darkness and brokenness. But you will one day, if you are a Christian, rise. And you will inherit the new heaven and new earth, and you will be with him forever. In my ranting and my raving, I was not doing well. But I finally realized I have to cling to the promises of God. I said, God, I trust you because Jesus came. He died for me. I trust when you say you will console me in all my afflictions. Men and women, wherever you are, it's time to trust in God no matter what you're going through. Hold on to the two anchors that God gives, his acts in history in bringing Jesus to us and his promises in his word to bring us to Jesus. You can choose to evaluate God's goodness through the prism of the present circumstances or you can choose to interpret your present circumstances through the prism or the lens of these two things, God's act in history and his promises to you. I invite you to do the latter. Now, those of you who are more theologically inclined recognize that there is an issue here of a woman disobeying her government, and that has been an issue that has plagued Christians for decades. My own example and this own example form two ends of the spectrum of when tragedy befalls. Mine was a, just a personal sadness. This is a vicious, demonic, evil edict against the people of God. In between are all kinds of governmental edicts, some for the common good, like trying to get us not to be killed by COVID. We tried all kinds of things. They weren't meant specifically to be targeted at any particular group for their religious beliefs. They were for common safety. There, the, the speed limit laws, the Gun control laws, the, all kinds of laws are meant for common flourishing. But there's a spectrum. Then there are laws that are meant for common flourishing but really interrupt Christian 
rhythms, like laws that may prevent us from meeting on a Sabbath, and so they're harder to find unity over. And the spectrum goes, and you will have a zillion questions. Don't put them in the Q&A. <laughs> We're going to do a seminar on the Christian approach to government in the new year. It will be for a couple of hours. You can ask all your questions then. So I hear you. I know the questions you have. I will try and answer them much more fully in a more appropriate time. But here I want you to hear this. God's silence is not His absence. It is His sovereign silence calling you to trust Him despite your present circumstances by looking at Him through the lens of His past acts of mercy and grace in history and His promises. The silence of God is a sovereign silence. Trust the sovereign God of that seeming silence. Secondly, the sovereign power of God. Now, here we have what most of us don't realize is a miracle. Because here, an epic, historic, ridiculous reverses, reversal of fortunes begins for the Jewish people. They do not know it. But here, we are introduced to another woman. It's the daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not named. The narrator doesn't care. He's just the king. The daughter's not named. She's just a daughter. Miriam is not named. Jochebed is, no one is named here in this story. It's fascinating because there's one central character who's not named but is meant to be seen all over this, and that is God. The daughter of Pharaoh suddenly appears, prepared to bathe in the river as a daughter of Pharaoh may do, with her attendants as the daughter of Pharaoh would have, and she sees this tava, and she pulls off the covering at the top of it and sees a baby, and the baby is crying, and she has pity upon the child. We would think, oh, that's just a regular compassion. Put yourself in this moment. Your father has trained you to hate Jewish people, to see them as a threat. Your father has called for an edict of death of all the people who cannot, should not risk their own lives by saving an Israelite child. Your own daughter, the daughter of the Pharaoh, has compassion and courage and says, I want to take this child into my life. It's crazy levels of courage and compassion in this moment. It makes no sense. I submit to you that this is in a most ordinary way a most extraordinary event. This is an ordinary woman's seemingly ordinary compassion, but it's actually a very ordinary miracle. Now see the Nile River, the place where so many children have been tragically murdered, now has become the place where the Savior of the Jewish people gets drawn out of the Nile. The Nile which produced so much death is about to produce deliverance for the Jewish people. Not only saved though, but brought into, and we hear eventually adopted into the royal family. 
this narrative gives us so many, uh, so many crazy, ironic reversals. We, can't, we can hardly keep count of them. The doomed child arises out of the Nile like a resurrected child. You're beginning to see the parallels. Moses is given by the daughter of the king by virtue of Miriam, the sister's idea, to the mother. The mother who gives the child away gets the child back, gets to nurse the child in the home of, and gets paid for it. Crazy. This is one of the most underappreciated miracles, I think, recorded in the Bible because it's truly miraculous. Moses goes from sentence of death to total protection of life, from powerless weakness to the most powerful royal family probably in the ancient Near East and maybe in the world at the time. No offense, no Hollywood story would attempt this script. I submit to you probably not even a K-drama would attempt a plot line this crazy. What are we to take from this? When God seems silent, he is sovereignly working in power to save his people and build his kingdom. Moses was raising up, was being raised up by God to be a deliverer. Moses would leave Pharaoh's house, be counted with the people of God. We'll hear about that in the future. The hated, enslaved Jewish people. He would use Moses to speak. God would use Moses to speak to Pharaoh and then lead God's people, Israel, out of slavery through Moses' leadership. Moses would become their deliverer. But God would do much more than that. He was not just a deliverer. Moses would be the one to whom God came on Mount Sinai and gave the law, the covenant law that would become the old covenant. He would be a mediator, as we call it in Christian theological circles. Men and women, I submit to you, if you're a slave, you need a deliverer. If you're a sinner, you need a mediator. And God here provided both a deliverer and a mediator for people who didn't even know they needed both. In a baby, in a teva, in an ark. Second thing we need to see is that God's power is displayed in apparent weakness that God may get the glory. Note that no one is named here because they're not important. They're not meant to get the glory. The women are not named. The, 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 the woman who brings them in is not named. Like Gideon, God loves to use people with little power to display his power that he may get the glory. Third implication. First one, when God seems silent, he is silently working his power. Secondly, he's working his power through apparent weakness. Thirdly, he's working his power through the reversal of evil. What Pharaoh meant for destruction for the Jewish people turned out to be their deliverance. And finally, fourthly, the working of God's power in this miracle of Moses is the foreshadowing of the greatest miracle story because a few thousand years later, Another edict of genocide against male children, Israelite male children, would be put by another ruler. This time, not in Egypt, but in the land of Israel or Palestine. 
That child, that later child, was brought up in a time when Israel was groaning again under the weight of oppression from another empire, this time Rome. And people were groaning for deliverance. And that child, that later child, was born in a time when Israel had been disciplined by God for their spiritual adultery, and they were in desperate need for forgiveness, for grace, for a new covenant with a new mediator. The Jewish people had proven to the world that even the most religious people in the world, even people who had directly met with God could still, by their deeply sinful and selfish greed and exploitive cruelty, envy, self-absorption and cruelty, could be separated from Him and in need of forgiveness. That's you and that's me. They were slaves to their sin. They were sinners in the face of a holy God. This child grew up with Israel as slaves to a deeper slavery, the slavery to their own sin. These were sinners who needed a mediator. These were slaves who needed a deliverer, and God sent them another child by another miracle. Jesus Christ, God's Son, came down not into a royal family, but from the royal throne room and family of God and came down into captivity under the imperial boot of Rome, born into a tiny village in colonized Israel. And this child, also protected from a genocidal edict, a demonic attempt to stop God, this child grew up into full adulthood and proclaimed this that we are all slaves to sin. He said anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, by which he meant we are all guilty. We are all slaves to sin. And that he also proclaimed not only that we're sinners, but he is the tevah. He is the ark that covers us from the just judgment of God. Because he went to the cross and on the cross, he shed his blood, and his blood became the cover, the teva. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God, Moses would grow up to give people God's law and be their mediator, but God's law was also God's mirror to show us a deeper slavery, a slavery to ourselves and our need for a greater deliverance and a greater mediator. It was to point us to Jesus. Final words. If you are suffering and hearing what appears to be the deafening silence of God. Remember, it is the sovereign silence of a God who is there with you, who has sent His Son for you, who has given you His precious promises, and who is waiting for you to move towards Him in faith. Move towards Him in faith. Remember that God's sovereign silence is always hiding God's saving power, which is always pointed towards two things, bringing freedom to slaves, bringing mediator to sinners, for that is what his kingdom is built on, freedom and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that we can give thanks for the greater mediator 
and the great protection of him and then for his dying and rising for us. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Because of the baptism, I think we have time for, for maybe one question. Uh, it was a lovely baptism. I'm so glad you said it, and it was beautifully said. Thank you, Jaja. But I think there's a question waiting. There's a question. It says, um, how do we know when God's silence is a challenge to persevere in patience or is a discipline? Good question. Sin? I was expecting that question, actually, and I was thinking about that question. It's the very question I had. When affliction comes, you have three questions. Is God disciplining me? Is God simply trying to teach me something? Or is the enemy attacking me? The answer is yes. Every one of these has an element of every one of those. No. How do you tell when God's disciplining you? If you look at the history of the Old Testament, when God disciplined them, he warned them first. He told them of their sin and gave them opportunities to repent before he disciplined. As a matter of fact, if you look at the history of the Bible, God spent decades warning Israel about their spiritual adultery before he unlocked discipline. So what I would say is you are usually convicted by God, by his word and his spirit about sin and warned about it before disciplining circumstances arise in your life. And so one of the ways that I look at it is I go, is there something I've heard clearly from God through his spirit, through others, through his word, that I'm supposed to do, that I'm not doing, that I know I'm not doing, and I've been persisting in not doing. If that's the case, there's a good chance that discipline is part of what's going on. If there is none of that, then I move to, is he teaching me something? Yes, he's always teaching you. Through afflictions that are discipline and afflictions that are just the brokenness of life that I have to endure, or afflictions that are a demonic attack. All three of those are opportunities for us to show faith. So he's always teaching us. Is it part of the brokenness of the world? Almost always it is. The world is filled with sin and evil and brokenness, selfish people, death and decay and disease. So that is also almost always. Is it a demonic attack? That's the hardest one to tell. Very often, even when the brokenness of the world is mostly what it is, there are whispers into your head, God doesn't like you. God hates you. God's doing something. God cannot be trusted. Those parts of that affliction are, can be sifted out as those are the parts that are the spiritually dark attacks upon your faith. Spiritual attacks tend to go against your faith. Discipline tends to convict you and make you want to change. Brokenness is just the brokenness. Teaching is available for every situation because you're always being taught to move to a greater trust. Great question. Now, let us respond in great thanksgiving and gratitude to God. Stand.